KBBR Corvallis, you're listening to 88.7 FM. This is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on the air. My name is Kristen Finch, and I'm a PhD student at Oregon State. On Inspiration Dissemination, we usually talk to graduate students about their research and about how they got into doing what they do at Oregon State. And tonight is no different, except that we have two graduate students instead of one. (laughs) And so we have Chelsea Beheimer from the Department of Environmental Science and Brian Erickson from Fisheries and Wildlife. Hey, guys. Hello. All right. So you're on the air with Inspiration Dissemination. And let's talk about you're at the intersection of natural science and social science. And that can be that's the conversation that you want to come on today to talk about. And so uh, how did you find yourself at this intersection where you have some kind of natural science background, but now you're looking more into the human element of that science that you're interested in? Uh, Brian, let's start with you. Sure. So it's been a long journey for me to get to this point. Um, a lot w- way back in undergrad, I was an animal behavior, uh, scientist. I really thought I wanted to go and get a PhD and, and study why animals do what they do. And, um, I happened to have the opportunity, uh, to study abroad in East Africa. And during that trip, we spent about six weeks on safari in Northern Tanzania, um, which was just kind of a dream come true. And I remember one night in particular, we had just spent the whole day in in Gorogoro Crater, which is this awesome uh, park. We saw hippopotamuses and cheetahs and, um, you know, elephants and giraffes and just about everything that you could possibly imagine. And that night we were sitting around uh, one of our fires and and we had a couple of guys with us who were from uh, the Maasai. So they're um, pastoralists. They, they graze cattle and they've lived in the area for thousands and thousands of years. And they were telling us about the formation of that park we had just spent all day in. And they talked, told us about how the British had come in and had some of their elders sign treaties with them that ultimately kicked them out of the land that they had been on from sort of time immemorial. And it was at that moment that I sort of realized that the conservation biology that, that I was going into um, one of the major premises of it was was that people and nature were not part of the same system, and that in order to protect nature, uh, the common practice was to kick people out. And so it, it took me about a decade from that point to finally figure out how to turn that into something that I wanted to do. Um, but that sort of moment led me down a path that eventually made me want to study the human side of ocean conservation. Right. So if you're on a trail or something like that and you come across maybe a sign in a prairie that says, hey, stay out of here. Do not tread here because we're trying to do some kind of reestablishment or other conservation project. But then it gives you the idea that humans are bad for nature. And that was kind of the the realization you came into when you had just been doing a safari, but then actually talking to the local people. Yeah, and even that that notion of a sign that tells you what you should do, right? <laughs> right. Um, there's this great case study of, of petrified national forest, and they had signs saying, "Hey, don't take um, don't take the petrified wood." When everyone does that, it, it leaves it so there's nothing left. But what they didn't realize was that they're reinforcing this notion that everyone else was taking pieces of petrified wood. Right. So it wouldn't be that bad if you do it too. So so sort of the thing that I'm getting into now is is that question of like, well how do our signs and how do the thing, the ways that we think people will respond, how do those actually lead to sort of better conservation outcomes? Right. And Chelsea, what about you? So you were, 
<laughs> you came from some kind of naturalist background, and um, but you have more of like an education about nature kind of story. So uh, what happened that day when you were on the cruise ship? Yeah, so um, I kind of had a similar uh, background to Brian. I was um, initially in uh natural sciences, specifically marine science, and then I got into teaching marine science on cruise ships. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about that background later, but this um, story that kind of speaks to where I'm at now. So I've been working as a naturalist for almost six years now on cruise ships. So what that means is I'm on board to um, teach people about the marine life and natural history associated with the places where we're traveling. So um, that's sometimes on really big ships. So you know, maybe two to 3,000 passengers. Uh, not all of them are coming to my talks <laughs> by any <laughs> means. Um, and sometimes that's on smaller ships, so maybe 60 to 100 passengers. Um, but I, I've loved teaching, and I love getting people excited about um, their environment and sharing with them the science of, of their surroundings. Uh, but I had this moment where I kind of just really understood that this is an opportunity for science communication beyond just teaching people and perhaps making connections. So um, I was on a, one of the really big ships, so uh, it's a 3,000 passenger ship, and we were sailing on the east coast of the South Island of New Zealand. And uh, we were on our way uh, toward the North Island, and it was just a beautiful day. The water was so calm. You could just see for miles. So if there was any marine life out there, um, it would be easy to spot. So I was down on the deck lowest to the water just scanning. It's uh, kind of my place where I pretend like I'm on a a small research vessel and not a giant (laughs) cruise ship. Um, And so I was out there and saw this massive pod of whales. I mean, it it looked like the water was boiling almost. There were so many whales uh, together in one place and they were moving really quickly. And I'm pretty familiar with the whales that are generally spotted in that area and these were not any of the whales I'd ever seen before and I was super excited to see a species that was new to me and so I was trying to get uh, great photos or video but they were it was just hard we were all excited Um, (laughs) and I was giving a talk that afternoon and I thought you know what I wonder if some other people on the ship saw them and with you know super fancy cameras got better pictures where I could identify them so I I went out on a limb and I, I played one of my video clips in my talk and I said, you know, there are maybe 300 people in the audience and I was like, did anybody see this pod of whales off the starboard side at about two o'clock? And I was just floored when probably at least half of the people, you know, raised their hands or were like, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, they are noticing. And I said, you know, if anyone got any really good pictures, I'd love to see them so I can identify because I actually have no idea what these whales were. And for me as a naturalist, you know, I'm supposed to know everything. And so for me to say that I have no idea what they are kind of, I think, surprised people. But at the same time, it it was a really cool thing. So anyway, uh, somebody did get a really good picture. And so I identified the whales. They were Arno's beaked whales, which uh, just so happens to be a, a really rare whale to spot. Um, they're pretty elusive. We don't actually know very much about them. Um, so I posted on Instagram, on social media, uh, my video clip with a little caption of the identification and 
um, just that we were super excited to see them. And that night I got a message from the New Zealand whale and dolphin Instagram account, which they do research on these animals. And they were like, this is awesome. Where did you see those whales? Let us know because, you know, we don't see them very often. And in that moment, I kind of realized like, wow, we are out here and, you know, we have the opportunity to see things that maybe research vessels don't. And so I, I, the next, during my next talk, I shared with the guests, you know, I figured out what the whale was and the researchers were so excited that we saw them. So thank you all. And people just loved that. And I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) They loved that. uh, They participated in this research in some way. Like they kind of had a hand in a some observation of this rare whale species. Yeah, it was so cool. <laughs> and then so like, yeah, but feeling like you, uh, like a naturalist that doesn't know what they're talking about for a second really didn't matter because right. it was like, well, you're contributing to something yeah. that, you know, not only, I think Brian, you were saying earlier that like, not only do you study whales, but the whale researchers have to find them as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like, he, I, I don't know. I always forget, I, I used to work at a marine science camp and we would take uh, students out whale watching all the time as well. And I always forgot that scientists also have to find the whales, you know, <laughs> right. like it sounds so silly like to they say should it, know but like where the whales are. Right. Why don't they just know? I can't tell you how many times people ask me that, you know, where are the whales? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't they're have them on their like speed there. dial. <laughs> you wait until they jump. And yeah, then we know. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Chelsea, it sounds like early on kind of you had this citizen science moment. And uh, can you tell me a little bit more about like what you're doing, thinking about citizen science now in your graduate work? Yeah, well, I'm I'm not exactly sure what it's going to look like. It's I'm still pretty early on. But I think another really surprising thing for me is is I, I come from a natural science background. And before I started working on cruise ships, I had this total stereotype built up in my mind of what cruise ship tourists are like and what they're interested in and what they know. And the more time I've spent with these people, the more that has been just flipped on its head. And I've recognized, you know, for a lot of these people, this is the only way they can travel or, or how they're comfortable traveling. And they're so excited to learn and in many ways connect with the places where they're learning. And um, I just kind of made this connection, well, you know, we as scientists are often, you know, limited in funding, limited in the number of places we can be at any one time. And you have this, you know, nature-based tourism that's just not going to go away. And there, you know, are people wanting to get out there and um, are, you know, a lot of people are frankly, you know, retired and are, you know, have time and resources to invest in, in learning and giving back to communities communities and, you know, younger people, future generations. And I think that it could be a cool opportunity for those people who are, you know, seeking to give back in their experiences to do that. So kind of like harnessing the power of these people are out in nature and they're like very excited and relaxed and want to be a part of it and kind of connecting, somehow connecting research therein and bringing like exciting, making more people excited about science, but maybe also learning something about the world because you're traveling in these places where, oh, a rare species of whale pops up. (laughs) Right. And uh, Brian, what about you? Like, how are you bridging the gap between natural science background and kind of looking at more human interactions with science? 
Yeah. I, well, so so a, a connection there. I, I just think that that notion of like getting a taste of what science is all about, especially right. if you've spent your whole life um, choosing a different career path. Maybe like as a kid, you you like science, or maybe science mm-hmm. was the most boring subject in the world. But having that taste of what science can be like, spotting a elusive whale, um, can really get people in into something and and sort of like send them down a really cool path they didn't expect. Um, totally switching gears. I, I'm now studying, um, I sort of look at the, the human side of, of ocean conservation. Some of it's from a psychology lens, but I'm certainly not a psychologist. Um, but sort of borrowing some of, some of these different understandings and ideas about why people do what they do. Um, so that notion of, of personal experience can really be a really powerful motivator. And I come from a background, I used to be a high school science teacher and before that, I wanted to be a, a marine biologist and an animal behavior biologist. And so I think now my project is also in its initial phases. Um, it's amazing how the first year of a PhD makes you feel like you know absolutely nothing. Right, yeah, been uh, there. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, but right now it's, it's, it's looking like I'll, I'll spend the summer in Tanzania working with this longstanding marine protected area um, called Mafia Island. And they basically had some success at, at removing sort of destructive fish, fishing, like dynamite fishing. Um, but there's still some concern from, from the local villagers and, and the local marine park that, that maybe it's not as great as it could be. And so the hope is to dig into that more and, and sort of find out why that's the case. Kind of under, trying to understand like why people have the fishing practices they do and why maybe they don't realize that that is damaging the environment in such a way. Yeah, and 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 some of the narrative has been that that sort of dismissive of some of the locals, which I think is is unfortunate. But there's been some narrative, at least that I've read, of like, oh, well, they don't understand the benefits of of this protected area, um, or or outsiders are coming in and and no one's getting caught because there's not enough money to send out boats to sort of patrol the area. So I think in, instead of relying on these these sort of old tropes of they don't know enough or they just don't see how it's helping them or they're bad for the protected area. Right. Or they're bad for the protected area or any of those things, finding out sort of what the different ideas on the ground are, finding out why people are doing what they're doing um, so that you can either um, find out if, if they're interested in still doing that or if there's some other totally sort of unexpected explanation that, that could help fix the problem. Right. And so saying that or back to you both being like pretty early on in your programs, um, social science and looking at like the effect maybe of conservation on humans in the area. There are some ideas that have been tossed about quite quite a lot in science. And so how do you enter a field now? knowing a little bit about social science and also knowing a lot about natural science perhaps, and then kind of like finding your niche there, finding out what you're even going to study since there is like a world of literature doing similar things, but maybe using completely different methods. Yeah, (laughs) that's a big question. (laughs) I just dropped the bomb. (laughs) No, it's okay. It needs to be dropped. We have to, you know, wrestle with that. And, And that's something that we're both processing is, you know, why is it is it valuable for us to um, look into the human aspects of um, the research that we're interested in? And I think, you know, for for anybody who's a conservation-minded um, person who wants to support conservation, you know, you can't really get people on board with 
you know, conservation efforts the way that you see them until you can understand the way that, that they see and interact with, with those situations, whether they're directly connected with them or not. Um, and we all have to, you know, in, in making policy uh, decisions, in developing, you know, um, research projects or developing conservation practices, we have to, you know, there are many stakeholders and we have to all communicate in a way that we can all understand. And in order to develop this, you know, universal language among uh, people who depend on a resource or an environment, we have to learn how we think and how we are um, connected and how, what, how our, you know, prior experiences have helped to shape our perceptions of, you know, that resource or area that you're um, concerned with, with conservation. And so, you know, coming at it with a social science lens is, is how you kind of get at those perceptions and where they're coming from. And it's pretty overwhelming <laughs> having not had any social science experience prior, prior to this. Um, but it's, there's just a lot of work that's, that's been done and I'm learning a lot in a short time. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that question of, of where we fit in, Mm-hmm. It applies to the fields that we're trying to get into, um, but it also applies. So Chelsea and I met and we're taking a science communications class right now. IB 599, I think it is. Yeah. So that's integrative biology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Special topics. Yep. Special, yeah. topics. <laughs> special topics. It's a very special topic. It it's a great one. Yeah. Um, but we sort of, we even connected on this idea of, of both being social scientists in a, a room largely made up of, of natural scientists of, of different disciplines and I know most of the time that we're in that class, I sort of wonder if, if I should be there. And, yeah. and part of it is that sort of, uh, what, were you, what were we just talking about this week? Um, oh, the message box? And no, but when you, when, you, when you feel like you don't belong. Oh, imposter there syndrome. We imposter syndrome. Yeah. So we were talking about imposter syndrome, but you know, <laughs> it, it, this question of do I belong, do I not belong? Mm-hmm. But, but the, the idea is, who's a scientist or what's a science? What, what is a scientist? And we're not those lab coat scientists, right? So we don't fit in there. Um, we don't fit in of the like classic picture of a scientist. We're also not a field biologist or a field scientist that goes out and captures that data. We're, we're people who are talking to people because we think that's going to help make the science more useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the whole time I'm like, okay, when you're saying scientists, are you talking about me or are you not talking about me? And, and sort of like, not only where do I fit within my field and my research question, but where do I fit within all of these other people that are generally concerned about the same thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of the question that you're asking for your subjects or for other people in, com- in your community or the community that you are studying. Mm-hmm. How do you maybe it is their local place. So that's obviously how they fit in, but how do they also fit in with the research that may be going on in that community and the conservation concerns around that community and its natural resources. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like you both are exploring this question in your (laughs) own like social identity in graduate school, but also trying to understand how other people fit in their communities as well. 
mm-hmm. which is a very interesting connection. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on on that point, I would think like, you know, you're studying humans. So just like I'm stud- maybe I could be studying you here today. Like I can ask you how you're feeling and like why you wanted to come on the show today and what is your mission in your science. Um, and so does that make it easier for me to be a social science if I can do an experiment on you guys right now just by asking you questions or what is it like to study humans and and kind of turn that into a conclusion about them? Yeah, still learning. Um, but, you know, short answer is there are so many different ways. I mean, just like in natural sciences, there are many methods depending on what, you know, what you're specifically studying and how, you know, what kind of questions you're asking. It's the same in social sciences. There are many methods and, you know, traditionally it would be like, you know, question and answer survey style or, you know, doing a, a an interview. Um, but we were, you know, talking the other day about there are many, many more methods that are, especially when you're looking at conservation issues, whether it's in a, you know, an indigenous community or you're, you know, looking at even from my perspective, um, something where you are trying to connect different groups. Um, there are participatory research methods that are really exciting and, you know, growing and people are using them more and more, whether that's um, a community uh, building a, a map together of their resources and how they use them. And so the researcher is analyzing this process to better understand, you know, how people are perceiving their connections with each other rather than just going around and and observing them just you know, as they are, they're actually getting the community to um, map those relationships out. Um, and so, yeah, it's that's there are several ways that you can, you know, develop a, a research project. It's not necessarily always going to be an experiment. So that that is possible in social science, but that's definitely, you know, not the general trend. Right. So what what's hard about studying humans? So so when when you were asking that question, I was thinking back to, I took a social psychology class in the fall and I actually just realized, I don't know if a psychologist would consider themselves a natural or a social scientist. I don't Mm -hmm. know. We should, we should get a psychologist in here sometime. (laughs) Um, But one of the, one of the things that I think is really fascinating, you were saying, okay, so like I'm a person too, and I can ask people questions. Am I a social scientist? Yeah, and exactly. I think I think one of the really uh, great challenges of, of of doing social research is this notion of well, if I'm going to spend all of this time collecting data and all of this time talking with other people, my results are going to fall into one of a few categories in the end. Either they're so obvious that you're going to ask, why did I have funding and spend all this time <laughs> to find out what you already knew by common sense? Another possibility is that my results are going to be so contrary to your own experience and your own understanding of the world that you're going to ask, how on earth did you get funding for this? Because you're finding something that is so obviously wrong. <laughs> and then the third type of, of results, which is, is sort of rare, um, but I remember uh, Dr. Bernary, who is the, the professor of that social psychology class, talking about a lot of the psychology studies that we end up hearing about are the ones that are just so shocking and surprising that they can't not be true. <laughs> and so that's kind of like right, the like rare exception. We couldn't exception. make this up. We couldn't right. make this up. It's right. We couldn't make this up. This is so 
dumbfounding, but it's so incredible. And so I sort of think about like, well, how do we, and I think a lot of the methods that Chelsea was talking about tries to get up at, uh, at the, the question of, well, if our results are going to be either obvious or just contested, how can we defend ourselves by having good methods and by, by sort of having good research to, to sort of stick behind what we're, what we're finding? Right. And then back to imposter syndrome and you're, that must play right into your yeah. whole feeling of like, you know, you realize that this is like a very limited study, perhaps, in that you're in a certain place and you're asking these certain people and you can't really necessarily find one silver bullet answer as to why people feel the way they do the way they do about water resources or single use plastics. It's like, Maybe someone doesn't, you know, it can be applied to anything like any reason could make it a non, um, a not very groundbreaking point or broadly applicable point. Um, but so having this background, I guess, of, of going through undergraduate and, and doing different kinds of science that you, you all were natural scientists in the beginning and realizing that you're kind of, it's kind of like beaten into you like statistics like yeah. you need all these like very uh good results significant differences in the means um how do you reconcile those feelings about what it is to be a scientist maybe and like what kinds of numbers and methods you're supposed to be using and reproducibility and whatnot with where you are now in that like humans are very complex and it's not that simple <laughs> yeah that's a big question i think what kind of speaks to that is one of my very first um, <clears throat> days in my social science, my first social science research methods class, we talked about paradigms. And normally when I think paradigm or worldview, I think just in general, like the way you approach everything that you do. Mm -hmm. And we were asked, you know, what's your research paradigm? And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's just not something we ask ourselves in natural sciences. You know, when I'm studying coral genetics and you know I'm working on a, a paper I don't have a statement of what my research paradigm is going into the work I don't have a statement saying you know what lens I'm coming from as a researcher and what I'm learning in social science fields is you have to consider that you as a researcher are a part of the equation and you you're kind of you know, recognizing that you're, it's not objective and, you know, you're either coming from one paradigm or another just in the question that you're asking, let alone your methods and how you're going to interpret um, what you're finding. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure yet what, you know, how I will be kind of looking at, at results and what I'm going to be doing because I'm going to, I still have a lot to do in terms of developing what my project will look like. But I think just directly how I'm going to appease my natural science brain is just working with ecologists in as a part of the process. So hopefully um, my work will, will help ecologists further their work through developing citizen science projects. Okay. And I would, I would sort of add the notion of paradigms also goes to sort of like what kind of question, what kind of question are you trying to answer? Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of social scientists that do nothing but gather numbers um, through surveys, right? And so they do all sorts of statistics to show um, sort of uh, how how their findings might might um, play out, right? So there's 
there's social scientists who do exactly what natural scientists do, but in, instead of um, watching organisms or gathering DNA uh, evidence, they use survey questions to do so. But then you have all those other social scientists that have all those other kinds of methods, um, everything from people studying the interconnections between people and social networks to people whose entire research uh, or data gathering practices is, is interviewing people and then trying to make sense of all the interviews. So back in December, our research lab went down to Panama and we spent two weeks interviewing different members of organizations. And so we only had 19 interviews, which, which really isn't that much in the grand scheme of things. But as we're trying to sort of make sense of, of what everyone was saying, you end up reading through each interview turns out to be somewhere between eight and 25 type pages. And when you're trying to find out what that meant or what, what you can sort of take away, you end up reading through hundreds and hundreds of pages of papers over and over and over trying to sort of pull out the meaning. And then the whole time you're, you're sort of like talking with other people about, well, is this really here or is this how I see the world and I'm trying to apply it to what I'm reading here? And it's that process of sort of like trying to make sense of, of the data that you have. And there's, in that case, there's no statistics to hide behind because there's really no numbers to, to generate unless you count how often a word is used or how often a concept comes up. Right. So you're saying like me reading our interview from today, I could key in on certain things that you say about radio because we're yeah. on the radio or certain things that you say maybe that's not a good example that's not a good example <laughs> i'll key into certain things that you say maybe about the whale stuff right before and then miss other things that might have caught the attention of someone else in who is reading those interview questions exactly. yeah so like so I can one, say yeah. people feel very strongly about whales because chelsea told me that 300 folks in her <laughs> in her cruise ship did or and then and each of us was really excited about the whale story right yes but then another researcher might come in and they might look at how much time each of us talks mm -hmm. and they might relate that to our gender or our right. past experience or they mm -hmm. might look at the order of how we talk so who asks the question who answers first mm -hmm. and so forth and that's a totally different dynamic yeah. right all right and so uh <laughs> we're um you're on inspiration dissemination by the way if you're just tuning in uh this is kbvr corvallis 88.7 fm we're here with chelsea Beheimer and Brian Erickson, both from the class Integrative Biology 599, we're talking about science communication and kind of how that plays into your roles as social scientists. Like, can you even remove those two things? Like, is social science science communication inherently? Wow. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to say no, it is not inherently <laughs> no, okay. science communication because sort of the essence of science communication is how do you take what we study within either the halls of academia or, you know, how do we take the research that we do and then make it make sense to people who aren't doing that research? Mm -hmm. And so we could do social science and make it so that no one else could understand it. I actually don't know if I could do that, but <laughs> I think, you know, it's possible to write something that's about studying people that nobody understands. And I would say that's a failure of science communication, but it's still potentially really good social science. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. That's my that's my initial reaction to that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, th I think that's one distinction I'm finding in science communication is, you know, a lot of the focus is 
is um, explaining what you do in a way that is accessible to other people, but it's not necessarily taking into account, you know, how they are learning or receiving that information and making connections and changing their behavior as a result of that. Right. So it's kind of, oh, I'm seeing the flowchart develop. So starting with the ecologist, for example, Chelsea is someone that is doing research maybe with a conservation training Mm -hmm. and their conservation purpose. And then they also want to have an element of their research be presenting this to Mm -hmm. local folks. And then so maybe that's where for like an ecologist that that's like definitely a lot of work. So maybe that's enough. (laughs) And then like it takes um, maybe a social science to come in after the fact and say like did this message really get across to you mm-hmm. or kind of how yeah. it, how is this maybe changing your behavior yeah and or, that's exactly why I am doing a PhD you know I've had friends and family been like well you could be a naturalist traveling forever and be you know a good teacher and communicate science but why in the world would you want to do a PhD and that's in you know social research and and that's exactly it is I want to know if you know it makes a difference and what ways can actually be better um and and making you know this opportunity better for science communication and conservation in the future so and I think we kind of share that yeah. yeah, so my master's work here at Oregon State was looking at how we teach about ocean acidification and whether that actually makes any difference of, of moving students towards maybe caring about it more or doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. And that question of, is what we assume is going to work? So we assume that if I tell you about ocean acidification, that you'll know about it, you'll care about it, and hopefully you'll do something about it. Um, but when we looked at our actual data that we gathered, um, and we did surveys, so we had numbers. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but when we when we looked at it, you you could see that yes, our students knew more. Many of the students had never heard of ocean acidification before we sat down and taught them about it. Um, and these are students out on the Oregon coast. Um, we also found out that they cared more after they knew about it. But we found out that even when we told them about all of the things that they could do within their home or within their community. They didn't feel like they had any more control over the problem. So they knew mm-hmm. about this terrible problem facing our planet, and they thought that it was totally outside of their control. Yeah. And so just that that sort of assumption goes goes to show that, that the teaching about the problem um, was maybe not enough to, to motivate the action that we were hoping to, to inspire. Right. All right. Well, it sounds like all a lot of conversations that are worth having. And it also sounds like you guys are are approaching, uh, you know, specific ways that you're going to continue to develop at in this intersection of natural science and social science. So that that's wonderful. And before we go, though, because we're getting close to the end of our interview, we have a song that Chelsea (laughs) has picked for us that just happens to be perfectly on theme of doing research at different levels and understanding people and society, but also with a conservation and kind of science, science lens. And so Chelsea, what is this song and uh, why, why did you recommend it for us? So this is a song by Jack Johnson, which I, it's been years since I've listened to Jack Johnson, but we're not judging. No, I love it. It came up on my Spotify while I was running and it just reminded me of one of the conversations we had the other day, um, just about, you know, well, why does it matter if, if it is so difficult to generalize the findings from you know, social science research, because it is so context specific and people are so complicated, you know, why is it important? And it's, you know, 
because it's valuable to understand different perspectives and to look at each person's perspective from another perspective and just to recognize the value in in the diversity of the way that we see things, the way that we perceive things, and um, to, to, try to try to create common understandings among all of those different paradigms and perspectives. So this song is called Pictures of People Taking Pictures, and uh, it just reminded me of that <laughs> never-ending uh, perspective spiral, I guess. <laughs> right. And that's kind of, kind of related to your story that you started off with is you're like trying to get a picture of, well, one, you're trying to get a picture of these whales, yeah. but two, you're really surprised and interested in understanding the other people that were taking pictures of the whales that yeah. were just travelers on a cruise yeah. ship and, you know, what kind of impact they play on and this whole thing and that being kind of your connection into social science in the first place. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on Inspiration Dissemination to talk to us about how your science is, is developing here at Oregon State University. Thanks for having us uh, to think through some of our yeah. confusion. <laughs> Verbal processing. Thank you so much. Right. Okay. So, um, well, this is Inspiration Dissemination and don't go away because we'll be back with our guest for this evening. You heard it on KBVR Corvallis. Don't go away. Pictures of people taking pictures of people taking pictures of people taking pictures. Of people taking pictures.